episode 90 of the State of the Old Republic podcast was originally recorded on November 28th, 2018. It's the State of the Old Republic podcast. Bioware held a live stream to discuss the guild changes in 510. I'll tell you what's up with the perks and more. Last week I told you all about the Masterworks gear and how to get it. Well, go ahead and burn the tape because everything has changed. And finally this week I'll tell you about Paxton Rawl, Osis Heroic Tuning, and my thoughts on the 40th anniversary of the Star Wars Holiday Special. And with that, it's time to make the jump to Lightspeed and check out the State of the Old Republic. Welcome to Episode 90 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and as you heard in the opening, I have another great show lined up for you today. Game Update 510 is currently on the PTS. Everything but the story is now available for testing. The guild changes were the last features to go up on the test servers, and on November 14th, Bioware held a live stream to review those changes and get us prepared for Game Update 510, Jedi Under Siege, before it goes live in early December. The live stream was basically a rehash of all the information they posted on the forums about the guild changes and guild perks. It wasn't completely void of new information. We learned that Game Update 510 will be released in early December, which is coming right up. We also got some clarification on how some of the guild perks are going to work. Turns out that those perks that affect stats are not so perky after all. Here are Eric and Charles explaining their impact in PvE and PvP. So one of the concerns that came up for stats specifically yes. um, is two things. One, please don't have any power effects in PvP. We agreed right out of the gates. None. There is nothing. None of these perks that have any power impacts affect any PvP. Unranked, ranked, not open world maybe, but definitely nothing that yeah. is competitive in any way. Yeah. Um, PvE, there's definitely a bit of discussion about um, what stats should or shouldn't impact. But I think in general, pretty much everyone agreed that they don't like the idea that these stats would affect progression PvE. So, Especially, you know, Master Mode Operations, for example. Right. So... One thing we're going to change is none of these perks will, our current plan anyways, that none of these perks will impact master mode operations. So yeah. that means that if you are doing progression or you are doing PvP, they will have no power effect at all. Additionally, perks that grant stats via an ability actually replicate the current class buffs and thus do not stack with those. That perk is geared towards brand new players who don't yet have all the class buffs available to them via Legacy. Perks that grant a passive buff are limited to one, meaning your guild will have to choose which perk they want out of several. And finally, any stats granted from a perk set bonus are fine. At the end of the live stream, Eric and Charles did a little Q&A, and there were a few interesting things to come out of it. Those of you wanting an in-game guild calendar, I wouldn't say you're out of luck, but don't expect it anytime soon. Charles said the team could look into it, 
but that a lot of players currently use other tools to manage their events. Clickable links in the guild panel is not happening at launch, but it's something they could consider down the road. Lastly, they said that they're not rebalancing content around the new guild perks, and that all of the perks and conquest objectives were based on data they've collected on what players are and aren't doing. So that's it for the live stream. At this point, we have a pretty good idea of what's coming in game update 510, and all that's left is for it to go live. Now, last week I talked about the new Masterworks gear and how you'll be able to get it in 510. If you recall, there will be two ways to acquire the new gear. First is through crafting, and second is by purchasing it from vendors on OSIS. Nothing is changing with crafted gear, but the process for getting the gear through the vendors is. After further review, BioWare felt there were a few problems with their initial implementation. First, it was too difficult to get the gear solely from PvP. Also, the system encouraged players to skip the 252 gear entirely and just focus on getting the 258 gear. There also weren't enough opportunities to get Masterworks data crystals, and you couldn't upgrade 252 gear to 258. So, the remedies for all of this? To start, BioWare is making a couple of changes to the vendors that sell 252 and 258 gear on OSIS. The 252 gear can be purchased for two Masterworks data crystals per item and will require reputation rank between Outsider and Hero. The 258 gear can be purchased for three to four Masterworks data crystals per item, will require a reputation rank of Champion or Legend, and will require the corresponding piece of 252 gear. That's right, before you can purchase the 258 piece, you must have the 252 armor. The good news is that is you can get 252 gear from sources other than the vendor. The weekly daily area mission allows you to choose one of three lockboxes as a reward. There's the lower body lockbox, which contains waist, legs, feet, or relic. The upper body lockbox contains chest, wrists, hands, or implant. And the tech lockbox contains the main hand, offhand, head, or ear. There is also a chance for 252 gear to drop from command crates once you are in tier 3 of Galactic Command. Yes, there is RNG tied to all of this, but it will allow you to save some of those Masterworks data crystals for the 258 gear. Now as far as how you get those crystals, you can earn one crystal from a weekly mission to defeat both world bosses on OSIS, or earn 50 group ranked arena points. Currently the world bosses are on a 15 minute respawn timer. BioWare will adjust if needed. You can earn one crystal from the new rotating weekly mission, and the rotating mission will contain one of four objectives. Story mode operations, master mode flashpoints, galactic starfighter, or ranked PvP, and Eric did say that they're considering changing this to unranked PvP, so keep an eye out for that when 510 goes live. You can also earn crystals as drops from command crates that are tier 3 or higher. And finally, you can turn in unassembled components for crystals, and unless you're swimming in components, you'll probably want to just buy one crystal a week as the price doubles after your first purchase for the week. That price does reset the following week. If you mainly focus on PvP, BioWare has increased the number of unassembled components that you can earn from disintegrating a piece of 252 gear. You will now get 175 components per item. Also, OSIS reputation rewards are getting added to ranked PvP missions, so you can earn that reputation outside of the daily area. So how does this all affect the gear grind? According to Eric Musco, if a player simply does two weekly missions of their chosen play style, they will be able to acquire a minimum of two 252 pieces per week, 
or upgrade one 252 piece to 258. This does not include crossing over into both PvP and PvE, any Masterworks data crystals or drops from command crates, or purchasing any crafted versions of this gear, which can speed up your acquisition rate of Masterworks gear. The grind will vary from player to player, but don't expect it to be short. In fact, 258 weapons, both main and offhand, won't be available when 510 releases. Eric said that they will be available early next year to coincide with a new piece of group content. Could a new operation be coming? Maybe. We'll have to wait and see. I definitely won't be doing doing Master Mode Gods from the machine, and I don't like spending hundreds of millions of credits on gear that will one day be obsolete. If I'm lucky, my main will be in 258 by the time Star Wars Celebration Chicago comes along. Only time will tell, but I'm definitely going to do the gear grind. Star Wars The Old Republic turns 7 this year. Since its launch, BioWare has created a decade-long journey for our heroes. Our class stories, Ilum, Makeb, Oricon, Shadow of Revan, Zayist, the Knights of Story Arc, and Iocath. It's a lot of story. When Game Update 510 goes live, we will embark on the next chapter of our character's journey, Jedi Under Siege. As we add new characters to our legacy, the thought of progressing through all of those stories is daunting. That's why Bioware has given us the option to fast-forward our character's progression to the present, but doing this is not without a price. Advancing the story means having important choices made for us and going down a road you might not have traveled. Charles Boyd took to the forums and posted information about which choices are made when you opt to advance the story. According to Charles, our general guideline for what choices are set by default is that Republic characters are assumed to make light-side choices, and Imperial characters are assumed to make dark side choices. Charles then went on to provide some examples and exceptions of some of the choices that they auto-complete. I'm going to cover them now. Please be aware that they contain heavy spoilers for Knights of the Eternal Throne, The War for Iocath, A Traitor Among the Chiss, and the Nathema Conspiracy storylines. If you've not completed those, you might want to skip ahead a few minutes. For everyone else, here we go. The HK55 bonus chapter that was given out as his subscriber reward is not auto-completed at all. Knights of the Eternal Throne Chapter 1, Republic characters are assumed to help Senya, Imperial characters are assumed to kill her. Thus in Chapter 6, it's assumed that Republic characters recruit Lightside Arkin, while Imperial characters are assumed to kill Darkside Arkin. Knights of the Eternal Throne Chapter 3, Republic characters are assumed to forgive Koth, Imperial characters are assumed to kill him. Knights of the Eternal Throne Chapter 5, Republic characters and Imperial agents are assumed to spare Scorpio. The remaining Imperial classes are assumed to kill her. And in Knights of the Eternal Throne Chapter 8, Republic characters and Sith warriors are assumed to save Vet. The remaining Imperial classes are assumed to save Torian instead. Now moving on to the War for Iocath. Republic characters are assumed to ally with the Republic and help Jace Malcolm. Imperial characters are assumed to ally with the Sith Empire and help Empress Asina. In Traitor Among the Chiss, 
Republic characters are assumed to take Zenta as a prisoner. Imperial characters are assumed to kill her. And finally, with Anathema Conspiracy, all characters are assumed to forgive Theron and keep him in the Alliance. As you can see, those are some pretty big decisions that you might not want to put in the hands of Bioware. They affect light, light and dark side points, as well as companions that live and die. It should be noted that this only affects characters that have not completed the storylines that preceded Jedi Under Siege. Now, when it comes to Alliance alerts, Charles said that, when starting the first new storyline mission in Update 510, the Light Side Arkan Alliance alert will be auto-completed if it hasn't been completed already. No other Alliance alerts will be auto-completed. According to Charles, the reason why Arkan's alert will be auto-completed is that since Alliance alerts aren't generally required to be finished before moving forward in the main storyline, it would hypothetically be possible to have Arkan's Alliance alert sitting on a character for years before completing it and, potentially, choosing to start a romance with him. To prevent this from causing issue with future romances, we need to know that you can no longer begin a romance with Arkan via that mission once a character has begun the storyline in 510. For similar reasons going forward, starting new romances with certain returning class companion characters may preclude resuming a romance with other returning class companion characters. For example, choosing to begin a romance with Nadia in Update 510 would preclude you from resuming an existing romance with Felix Oresso if you hadn't already done so via his Alliance alert. You will always get a warning confirmation on choices like this. Overall, I think this is good news. I like knowing the decisions that will be made for certain characters if I choose to push the button and take them back to the future. And it's nice that the Alliance alerts will not be impacted, especially since there will be several alerts coming with 510. Doc, Jason, Nadia will make the returns, and last week we learned that the pirate Paxton Rawl will finally make his triumphant debut in Star Wars The Old Republic. Bioware is giving him to us as a subscriber reward. That's right, to get Paxton you need to be subscribed to the game by Friday, December 14th. Paxton will be delivered to players via in-game mail on Thursday, December 20th, the 7th anniversary of Star Wars The Old Republic. Similar to companions like Master Ranos and Shea Vizsla, you'll receive a device where you can claim him immediately. You can also recruit Paxton via an Alliance alert, assuming you've completed Chapter 9 of Knights of the Eternal Throne. These are not mutually exclusive. You can claim Paxton with the device and still do his Alliance alert. If you haven't seen Paxton, he's a Twi'lek and he looks pretty cool. Bioware is doing an amazing job with some of their recent character models and Paxton is no exception. And I want you to close your eyes and perhaps your ears and pretend that I can actually do a good Lawrence Fishburne impression because... What if I told you that the Osis Heroic Plus 4 mission actually requires four people? One of the game's designers named Jackie popped onto the forums to chime in on their design goals for the new daily area. And according to Jackie, for Osis, we want to have some more difficult content that encourages group play. Something to add variety among the soloable content we have. 
To achieve that goal, we're reintroducing Heroic 4 missions, which some of you may remember from the base game. These are heroics that will be balanced for four players or two players and two companions. Heroic 4 missions are not designed to be soloed. Players who obtain higher tiers of gear or who are higher skilled may be able to clear them solo with a companion, which we are fine with. She went on further to say, We will still have Heroic 2 missions on OSIS. There will just be one Heroic 4 mission. The plan is not to force anyone to play the Heroic 4 mission. It's to provide an option for people who want to play group content. There will still be soloable Heroic 2 missions. The Heroics are also not part of the dailies, weeklies that give Masterwork shards, so playing the Heroics is not needed to obtain the higher tiers of gear. There is a weekly Heroic mission that will require players to complete three Heroics in a week, but the players are free to choose whichever Heroics they want to complete. You can in fact complete the same Heroic mission three times to complete the weekly Heroic mission. I haven't tried the Heroic Plus 4 on Osis, so I don't know how involved it is. I did enjoy the end of Torvix and the Aurora Cannon missions introduced with the Black Hole in Section X. They were like mini flashpoints and fun to do. I like that the Heroic Plus 4 isn't tied to progression and just something you can do for fun and variety. And by the way, what if I told you that Morpheus never says the line, what if I told you in the Matrix? At least I think that's the case. One last item before I go today. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the Star Wars Holiday Special. Now, I'm not here to make the argument that the Holiday Special is somehow one of Star Wars' greatest achievements. I can picture Jar Jar Binks and the Holiday Special sitting in a dark cantina together. As Jar Jar cries tears into his frosty glass of blue milk, the Holiday Special looks at him and says, Gungan, please. The Holiday Special is absolutely the worst of Star Wars, and yet despite its flaws, I can't help but look upon it with great fondness. It only aired once on November 17, 1978, and I was there to see it with great anticipation. I remember sitting in the living room that Friday evening, glued to the television. I didn't mind that it was presented in a 1970s variety show format. I didn't mind the seemingly endless banter and wookie speak. I didn't notice Luke's odd hair or Leia's bad singing. If I hadn't had a chance to see it again thanks to the internet, I would have only remembered a few things from the special. That strange alien who drank by pouring liquid into his head, the evil empire trashing Lumpy's room, and Han Solo saving the day when he tossed a stormtrooper off the deck of Chewie's treehouse. It was Han who was the big hero back then, not Luke. And of course, the debut of Boba Fett, the most anticipated new character in the Star Wars universe. He appeared in an animated short which, unlike the holiday special, has since been re-released in official Lucasfilm channels. StarWars.com recently interviewed John Celestri, the man who animated Boba Fett for the special. What was surprising to learn is how little guidance Celestri had on what to do with Boba. According to him, Lucas had requested that Nelvana design the show in the style of French artist Jean Mobius Giraud. So for Boba Fett specifically, we had Mobius's, Mobius's designs along with a black and white home movie of the prototype Boba Fett armor to work from, and that was it. Celestri went on to explain, We began with Mobius's color approach with lighter pastels, so for Boba, blue was the base color. Costumes have to read against the background. Boba was mostly set against the darker range of the spectrum. That means the character needs to be lighter, and the whole reason behind this was that at the time, many families still had black and white televisions. We had to make sure that it read on the screen. The biggest TV screen in 1978 was 22 inches diagonally. 
If George Lucas cared about the rest of the show like he did the Boba Fett animated short, we might have had a holiday special that likes to rival Rudolph Frosty and the Grinch. If you've never seen the holiday special, you can still find it lurking about the internet, which is pretty impressive when you consider that it only aired once, was never re-released, and VCRs were just coming onto the scene. They weren't yet household items in 1978. And despite its awfulness, the holiday special did introduce Life Day into the Star Wars universe, something that we celebrated in Star Wars Galaxies and celebrate today in Star Wars The Old Republic. And that's the State of the Old Republic for today. Let me cut in the sublight engines and cue the music and congratulate you on surviving another half hour listening to episode 90 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and I thank you for tuning in. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and Buzzsprout. You can also listen to the show directly from the show site, which is SOTORpodcast.com, and there is an RSS feed where you can subscribe to the podcast directly. If you have a question for the show, you can email me at SOTORpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet your questions to at SOTORpodcast or send me a direct message, and be sure to follow me on Twitter to get the latest information on the show. For episode 91 next week. Till then, remember the Sith Code. Cake is a lie.